Good morning, everyone. Hymn 960. Nine hundred sixty. Isaiah, mighty seer in days of old, the Lord of all in spirit did behold. High on a lofty throne in splendor bright, with robes that filled the temple courts with light. Above the throne were flaming seraphim, six wings had they these messengers of him. With two they veiled their faces as was right, with two they humbly hid their feet from sight, and with the other to aloft they soared. One to the other called and praised the Lord. Holy is God the Lord of Sabaoth, Holy is God, the Lord of Sabaoth. Holy is God, the Lord of Sabaoth. His glory fills the heavens and the earth. The beams and lintels trembled at the cry, and clouds of smoke enwrapped the throne on high. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O God, because without you we are not able to please you, mercifully grant that your Holy Spirit may in all things direct and rule our hearts. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Okay. Matthew eighteen twenty-two. Let's speak this together. I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. What is the context of this verse? Forgiveness? Yes, forgiveness to whom? Uh, whoever you think did something to you. Well, sure, using the language of Matthew 18, it's forgiveness to your neighbor. brother. brother. It is neighbor, but, but the language is brother. Master, how, or Lord, how often should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times? And he says, no, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Uh, why seven? Uh, 
Well, that's a biblical number. I guess it is a biblical number. You're, you are correct. But why? What's, pardon me? Okay, yes, you're on the right track. What happens in creation involving the number seven? Why is it important at creation? Yes, completion. So the seventh day is the Sabbath day. That is the day that God rests. It is the day when everything is done and when all the work ceases. Seven is a number of completion. So you find this a lot in Scripture when there is seven or some kind of multiple of seven. It's something that means completion. So why then should I forgive my brother seven times? Because seven is the divine number of completion. So if I forgive my brother seven times, then I've done what the Lord wants, right? Because I have forgiven up to the point of completion. And the Lord says, well, it's a good start, but you're not quite there yet. Not seven times, but 70 times seven. And this doesn't mean 490 times, like every time you forgive your brother, you keep a little clicker. All right, that's another one. Oh, there's another one. And then up until 490, and you say, well, I've made it as far as Jesus wants me to, and now I don't have to forgive you anymore. Let's be uh, theologians and Christians here. It's actually good that when Jesus says 70 times, seven times, it doesn't mean this is what you have to do. This number uh, is what you have to do. Listen, the, the point of this whole business, 70 times seven, is to create a large number. 490 times of forgiveness is a pretty uh, big number of times of forgiveness. And that's the point. It's a big number. 70 times seven isn't to say you have to keep track of the times that you forgive. It's instead saying you forgive to an infinite sum, a grand and infinite sum. Uh, there are a lot of things in the Bible that use numbers that are really, really big, not because it's trying to tell you, well, if I need to keep a tally here and make sure I get right up to that number that it says. No, it's telling you by the size of the number that it really is infinite. The bigger the number, the closer to infinity it approaches. So, not seven times, but 70 times seven. An infinite sum, an infinite well of forgiveness that stems from what? Yes, stems from love, love for your brother, love for your neighbor, and ultimately from your love of God. Yes. Okay, let's speak this again. I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. What is the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer? And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What does this mean? We pray in this petition that our Father in heaven would not look at our sins or deny our prayer because of them. We are neither worthy of the things for which we pray, nor have we deserved them. 
but we ask that he would give them all to us by grace, for we daily sin much and surely deserve nothing but punishment. So we too will sincerely forgive and gladly do good to those who sin against us. Yes, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What should you immediately see in that? Correct. We ask the Lord to forgive our sins with the understanding that we are also to forgive our brother. Can you think of a parable that is a really good example of this, a good illustration of what you're praying for in the fifth petition? Yes. Yes. One servant racks up a $10 trillion deficit with his master, and his master wipes it away, and then the servant goes out into the courtyard and shakes down his brother servant for $10. And that's the example. You have been forgiven much. The slights that are against you by your neighbor are pretty small in comparison with the debt that has been wiped out for you. So when you pray, that the Lord would forgive your sins, that he would wipe out your $10 trillion debt, it comes with the assumption that you are also then going to go and forgive the $10 debt that your neighbor owes you and not shake them down. Uh, you pray in this petition then that your Father in heaven would not look at your sins or deny your prayer because of them. What is the assumption there? Okay, yes. That's true. What is the assumption on the other side? If you're praying that he would not look at our sins, the assumption is that you have sins to look at. So it's, all, it's a confession of sins, even as you're praying for the forgiveness of sins. Forgive us our trespasses. You're assuming that you have trespasses to forgive, which is a confession that says, I am a sinner in need of this forgiveness for which I ask. This is also a good illustration of what forgiveness is. Forgiveness isn't just forgetting about your sins. Uh, forgiveness is living as if you had forgotten. You'll never forget the slights that people uh, perform against you. You'll never forget the sins that people perform or the, the uh, problems that those sins cause for you. But you're supposed to live as if you had. Forgive and forget is a nice sentiment, but, it's, but it never really works out the way that it's supposed to. Now, the one, uh, the one sort of uh, exception to this rule is that the Lord actually does forget your sins because the, your sins are wiped out of existence. There's nothing to remember because they don't exist. So that's something to think about in forgiveness. But for right here, for the catechism, he doesn't look at your sins because they've been put away, because he lives with you as if he had forgotten what you had performed by virtue of the blood of Christ. And you also pray that he wouldn't deny your prayer, that he wouldn't look at you and say, oh, well, you've been pretty bad. I don't really want to hear anything that you have to say. You don't deserve my ear. Of course you don't deserve his ear but you have it, and that's part of grace. 
because you're neither worthy to ask for the things for which you pray, you don't deserve them. Everything has to be by grace. And why do you need grace? Well, because you're a sinner. It's kind of circular. You pray for the forgiveness of sins and confess that you have sins, and then you ask that you would receive things by grace because you are a sinner who confesses his sins and need grace and pray for receiving that grace. It goes like that. You daily sin much, and you deserve nothing but punishment. Of course. So sin we too, pardon me. Sin is a continual thing. Sin is a continual thing because sin is a condition. There's different definitions of sin. Sin can be an act, like if I take what is not mine, that is a sinful act. The act of theft, the thing that I just did, is a sin, but it stems from the condition of sin, or what we would say original sin, midweek, the sinful condition. It's like a disease. There's side effects of every illness, but the side effect is not the illness. The symptoms are not the illness. They come from the illness. So your act of sin, my act, comes from a greater condition. It is but a symptom of something that has infected me down to the very core. So we too will sincerely forgive. It's like your father saying, you will be in church. He's not here. He was blowing leaves or acorns this morning, but now he's not here to get the joke. Uh, there's the guarantee, you will forgive. And not just forgive, but sincerely forgive. So you don't get to have your parents say, now apologize to your brother. Okay, I'm sorry. Because everybody knows that you have at least once apologized and not meant it. But here, you are to sincerely forgive. Have all of your words of forgiveness be true and sincere, stemming from love. All right. Very good. Any questions? Okay. To Sunday school, you may go. Very good. Very good. Any questions about anything else before we jump in? Okay. You know it all. <laughs> so, not last week, but the week before, we ended class talking about the Athanasian Creed and Mark chapter 11. Uh, the Athanasian Creed, specifically because of the last few verses of the Creed, where those who have done good will enter eternal life and those who have done evil will enter eternal fire, which would make you think that there is some kind of a judging that is performed based on works. And then in uh, Mark chapter 11, do you remember specifically what we looked at there? The cursing of the fig tree. The cursing of the fig tree. So 
Jesus curses the fig tree because what? Why does he curse the fig tree? It has no fruit. It has no figs. Now, for you farmers, maybe, I, maybe I'm going into an area that is above my head here. Because I know... You're safe here. I know very little. But here's the question. If you have crops that are not producing anything and are consistently not producing anything, do you continue to work with them and do you continue to leave them there or do you replace them with a crop that's going to work? Maybe change to another seed company. Maybe change to another seed company. <laughs> no, you're going to do something different. You know, the, the, the expression, the definition of stupidity is to yes. repeat the same thing expecting different results. Yes. Yeah, so you would, you would look at what's happening and, and have to alter it. Somewhere. Right. The expectation is that when you plant something, you're going to be able to reap something. Uh, when you plant a fig tree, you don't plant it because it's going to look pretty. Now, it very well may look pretty. I don't actually know what a fig tree looks like, so I can't say. But the point is, it's not an ornamental. You're planting that because you want the fruit. You don't plant an olive tree because you can't wait to see the blooms. You plant an olive tree because you want olives. You plant a fig tree because you want figs. So if the fig tree never produces any figs, what good is it to you? It's not good to you. So you cut it down. Uh, what does this sound like? The ax is laid bare against the roots. Does that ring any bells? Hmm? Yeah, John the Baptizer. What is his message? Ah, the winnowing fork is in his hands. He's already here. He's ready to throw the chaff into the fire. The good stuff is saved. That which the crop produces is saved. Everything else is thrown into the fire. The chaff is gone. The axe is laid bare against the root and it's getting ready to chop the tree down. And from Mark chapter 11, now you know, why is the axe getting ready to chop down the tree? Because, it wasn't because the tree does not bear fruit. There's a lot of language throughout scripture, um, a lot of agricultural language, a lot of language that deals with planting a seed, with seeing what happens when the seed and, and its plant uh, are cared for and nurtured and seeing what the expectation is of that planting. When you plant a vineyard, what do you expect? Fruit. Yeah, so that you can have something to drink. <laughs> there's, by the way, anytime that there's parables about vineyards, the whole idea of wine is important because of the wedding feast, the good wine. You know, all of this all of these narratives about wine blend together. The, uh, the stewards, or excuse me, the, un, the, uh, the wicked tenants in the vineyard, which ties into Isaiah, where Isaiah tells, has the same kind of a vision of tenants that serve in a vineyard, uh, and then they don't produce any fruit in that vineyard. They're, they're bad tenants, and then they are kicked out. 
uh, or the tenants who rent out the vineyard and then don't give the fruit to him who owns it and kill his son. I mean, that's kind of an obvious one. But this, this idea of wine, drinking of the cup, the fruit of the vine, all of it ties into Christ, his death, the Eucharist. Wine is an important thing. So, you cut the tree down because the tree doesn't bear good fruit. Now, can you look at that, and then can you look at the Athanasian Creed, and can you say, you will not be judged by your works? Can you look at that? Can you say, the tree that doesn't bear fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire, and say, my works don't matter, I won't be judged by them? You can't. This is what I'm trying to show you with this whole idea of works, that works actually do matter. There is a confusion in the Lutheran Church. Two big ones. The first one is sola scriptura. The second one is sola fides. Scripture alone and faith alone. Two big misunderstandings. Because there is the thing that that means... And then there is the thing that people think it means. And when it comes to Scripture alone, what people think it means is actually a completely different concept, something called Scriptura Nuda, the naked Scripture, nothing except the words of Scripture. Here is an example of what Scriptura Nuda looks like. Well, I support abortion. I thought you were a Christian. Oh, I am. I am a Christian. But the Bible expressly condemns abortion, and the church expressly condemns abortion. Well, no, it doesn't, though. There isn't a verse in Scripture that says, thou shalt not commit abortion. And because the words of Scripture don't say that, and because I believe in Scripture alone, then I can believe that abortion is okay because there aren't any words in Scripture that say, I, couldn't, I shouldn't do that. That is an example of Scriptura Nuda, that every single thing in Scripture has to say exactly the one literal thing that you want it to say and that there couldn't possibly be any meaning deeper in the text, anything, uh, any kind of implication or theological statement to be taken from the text and, and, that you can take the text cold and just understand completely everything that it says to you. How does your pastor know what the Bible says? How does your pastor prepare a sermon to preach the text of the gospel to you? I study, yes, and what is it that I study? Yes, and the words of the church. What the church says also matters. Why do you think we have church fathers that we read and listen to in companion with the Bible? And one of the problems during the Reformation time were that they read only church fathers without the Bible, which is part of where the idea of scripture, of, of sola scriptura comes from, that, well, you can't 
You can't use the church fathers as your ultimate source because even they don't use themselves as their ultimate source. Scripture has to be the ultimate source. But it's not scriptura nuda, which means that nothing but the text of this page matters, because they do. Aubrey. Yes, it's better for you to enter into heaven uh, lame with having cut off one of your legs or having cut off one of your hands or to pluck out your own eye uh, than to go into hell with your body intact. So next Sunday, I expect for all of you to either be missing one of your appendages or to be missing one of your eyes. And if, and if all of you don't come in universally wearing eye patches over the socket that you created this week, then, well, I'm going to have to preach a hellfire and brimstone sermon to you because you're not real Christians. Um, yes, <laughs> there, is, there was another good example. You, if you want to, it's fine to talk about Scripture alone. That's fine, and we believe it, but you have to understand what it is you actually believe. And sometimes things can become buzzwords where you say the word, but you don't know what the word is. And you believe in the word, but you don't actually know what the substance of the word is that you're supposed to believe in. So here's another, a couple of examples. Now, the Bible never says the word trinity, so therefore, because scripture alone, it's not in the Bible, you can't believe in the trinity. How about the word rapture? Scripture never says anything about the word rapture, so as a faithful Christian then, sola scriptura, the word is never there. You can't believe that either. Now, you shouldn't believe in the rapture, but this is just... One of the things is, one of the differences between some of our evangelical brothers and sisters is that they hold to what they call scripture alone, but it isn't. It is scripture, uh, scriptura nuda, naked scripture, nude scripture, nothing else except for the literal words on the page, and nothing even deeper. Every word only means one thing, and only these words, and nothing else matters. Nothing that the church has ever said matters, even what the apostles themselves would preach and teach. Well, that doesn't matter, because that's not the Bible. Bill. Uh, going back to, coming back to the pastor for explanation, don't we see in the Ethiopian eunuch at questioning, what does this yes, mean? Yes, yes, good. The Ethiopian eunuch is reading scripture, is he not? Yes, Isaiah. Isaiah, what a way to start reading scripture. Right there in Isaiah. Does he understand what he's reading? No, he doesn't. Now, this is not to say, again, don't take me out of context here, this is not to say that the scriptures are not clear, because they are. But what are they clear about? That Jesus is the Savior of the world. That yes. That Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That Christ dies and atones for the sins of the world. That Christ was raised from the dead. So what we would say is it's clear on matters of salvation. But does that... Does that so this is a really good example for you to think about. Does that mean that you can open to the book of Revelation 
and read it all by yourself with no help, never reading anything that anyone in the church has ever written about Revelation through the 2,000 years that the church has been alive, you, all by yourself, brand new, opening your Bible, sitting down, and that you can all of a sudden understand everything that Revelation says. Or that you can open up Ezekiel, which, between you and me, is just as bad as Revelation as far as complicated matters and really deep theological statements and confusing things. Can you just open those up and read them and understand 100% of what you're talking about? No. I mean, this is one of the things to consider, too. The Bible is a church book. So one, on the first level, how do you understand what the Bible is saying apart from the church? You can't. It's a church book. The second thing is, how do you understand what the Bible is saying if you don't listen to the words of the church? Well, you can't. There has to be preaching. That's one of the reasons why the Lord establishes the office of the holy ministry and why the office of the holy ministry is something that is passed down and why the people who receive that apostolic office as it's passed down from generation to generation to generation have to go through immense uh, degrees of study before the church even thinks that they're the beginners who are ready to start doing things. Uh, so the Ethiopian eunuch is a good example. Does it subtract from the fervent desire of his faith to know and to understand that he has to ask Philip to explain it to him? No, not at all. Your pastor does the same thing. Sometimes I call up veteran pastor friends of mine and have conversations when I don't know what to say or don't know what to think or don't know what to do. Other times I call upon my dearly beloved and departed saints of old and read what they have written millennia ago about the same texts. And most of the time, what I'm preaching to you is something that has already been said a thousand times before. This is the good mark of a heretic. A heretic is somebody who says something new or novel in the church. <laughs> If you're saying something new in the church that has never been said before, you're probably a heretic. Because being in the church is not about coming up with brand new ideas and new concepts and, hey, new fangled ideas. There were a couple people who tried to do that in the Old Testament, and they didn't fare so well. Nadab and Abihu, that's the primary example that I can think of. Uh, do you remember Nadab and Abihu? Yeah, great. See, this is why I wrote more midweek materials, because I want everybody to know about Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu are the two eldest sons of Aaron. And do you remember? Well, maybe you don't. Can you think about what might have happened to Nadab and Abihu? They were killed. They were consumed by the fire of the Lord for introducing something new to the tabernacle. The Lord's holy fire for burning incense and for offering sacrifices was to come from the Lord himself. And they brought the different... I, I like sometimes comparing these different translations because some of them will say um, impure, some of them will say unlawful, and my favorite, the King James and the New King James, says 
profane. They bring profane fire into the place of the Lord, and they're consumed by fire right there. New and novel ideas are not what the church is about. The church today preaches exactly the same thing that the church preached in the time of Jesus. In fact, the church preaches the same thing that the apostles preach and the same thing that Christ himself preaches. So when you understand scripture alone as meaning that scripture is the only rule, but that there are other valuable things that you also should read that will help you with scripture, things start to change. Then you can look at the history of what the church teaches and you can say something like this. Well, it doesn't say thou shalt not abort a child plainly in the scripture, although it does say do not murder and it does talk about how all lives are sacred and how it does talk about Jesus loving children. And I can add, and one plus one plus one has a sum, and the sum of all of those three things is you probably shouldn't try and kill a baby. But don't take my word for it, because you can also look at the apostles who said in black and white, thou shalt not abort a baby. You shall not kill it in the womb or kill it after it has been born. You can't get any more black and white than that. And the apostles themselves preached it. Now that's not scripture but it is the word of the apostles, which probably has a little bit of weight for the church, or ought to, wouldn't you think? The ones who followed Christ, who were eyewitnesses of his resurrection and his death, the ones who were ordained by Christ, put into the office of the priesthood, sent out, I mean, if they say something, it probably matters. You can already see in the scripture it matters enough because there are a lot of epistles in the New Testament that were written by apostles. Here's another thing. What about the Apocrypha? What do we think about the Apocrypha? It's, it's not part of the, of the, uh, the inspired. We, do, we don't consider that in the same context as, as the Old and New Testament. Mm -hmm. But it, it is a reference that we use. Um, I'll give up. Here's, here's one way I would encourage you to think about it. And I, I wouldn't say that the Apocrypha is not inspired. It's not inspired scripture, but that doesn't mean it isn't inspired. In fact, Lutherans believe, or they ought to believe, if they read the small catechism, in the Latin, that somehow doesn't make it into print anywhere. Every sermon that you hear is actually an inspired word of God. That's what Luther writes in the small catechism. That's part of the explanation for the third article, or uh, the, for the third commandment. That you would not despise, excuse me, that you would not despise preaching or worship or the divinely, excuse me, or the divinely inspired sermons. That's one reason why if you compliment me on a sermon, I will not accept the compliment. I will say thanks be to God instead because it's not the guy. I research, I study, I type at a computer, but at the end of the day, it's not the guy. It's the office. It's the Lord. Uh, divinely inspired. So the, uh, I would say the Apocrypha is inspired. The church doesn't use books that it doesn't believe to be inspired. 
but it does d uh, distinguish between something that is scripture and something that is canon. So there's a corpus of literature in the church that is considered canonical literature, part of the Christian canon. The Apocrypha is there, but it isn't scripture, so it's not put on the same level as scripture. But canonical works are still put above other works in the hierarchy of things that are important for Christians and for the church. Um, and you might be surprised to know that Lutherans actually hold the Apocrypha in high regard. If you read the Book of Concord and count how many times they quote books from the Apocrypha, you might be surprised the kind of emphasis that they put on it. You also might be surprised to know that much of the liturgical texts that you perhaps don't pay attention to or take for granted actually come from the Apocrypha. From the Easter Vigil, the Song of the Three Young Men comes from the Apocrypha. Additions to Daniel. The uh, introit for not today. It's not today, is it? From Ecclesiasticus? It is from today. Oh, perfect. The best object lesson ever. The antiphon for the introit is not from Ecclesiastes. It's from Ecclesiasticus which is a canonical book, part of the Apocrypha, but not scripture. There are a few other antiphons that you'll see. If you pay attention to the little references, there are other antiphons that are not from scripture, but they are from canonical books. Tobit, Wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, some of those are the biggest books that the reformers cite and that are used in liturgical texts. Uh, and during the season of Lent, the midweek readings that were used during the time of the Reformation and appointed by the church and retained even post-Reformation by the Lutherans are almost, well, not, I guess I won't say that, but there are many in that series that are from the Apocrypha for Lenten midweek readings. Bill. St. John's, the old Pope Bible, the German Pope Bible, had the Apocrypha in it, and I was unaware and kind of, uh, I'm not shocked, but I said to Pastor Woolmaster, the, the Pope Bible, the German Pope Bible, has got the Apocrypha in it. He said, well, sure. That, that, they all have that. They, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I was not, no, I never ever heard that comment. Yeah, well, sure. See, now it's, now it's separate for us, and uh, sometimes it's not the best. <clears throat> if you've never read the Apocrypha, go out and read it. I mean, it's really good. There's a lot of great stuff. The Maccabees are good if you want some history about what happens between Malachi and Matthew, and if you want a good explanation of why the Pharisees are the way that they are, read some Jewish history in the Maccabees. But then things like wisdom and Sirach and uh, Tobit and Baal and the dragon and other additions to the book of Esther or to the book of Daniel, they're really good. 
And they have a lot of very important things to say that have been very influential for the church. And if you want other canonical books to read, I did write a whole newsletter article about this too with my top 10. Things like the Didache, I talk a lot about that. That's my, one of my favorite canonical books of all time. And I think it's a little more important in some ways than the uh, Apocrypha because it's the words of the actual apostles, the first church orders. Hey, you wanna be a church? Here's how to do it. You wanna be a Christian? Here's how you be a Christian. We'll tell you how. Stuff like the Didache, the epistle, the first epistle of St. Clement of Rome, the epistles of Ignatius to all of the same churches that St. Paul wrote. I mean, th there is some really, really important literature out there that isn't scripture, but that doesn't mean you throw it away because it's not scripture. So there's a misconception about what we mean when we say scripture alone. And on the flip side, then, there's a misconception about what we mean when we say faith alone. In fact, this was sort of fortuitous. Uh, I was reading in the large catechism to talk about baptism two weeks ago, a week ago. We had a baptism last week, so it was the middle of the week before I met with the parents. I was just doing a little bit of study to refresh myself so I could talk like an intelligent person. And uh, there was a, a part there that I had forgotten about where in the large catechism, Luther, in speaking about baptism, says many people falsely preach that through baptism we're saved by faith alone. <laughs> and I laughed sitting there reading that because nobody would remember that and most people don't read the large catechism anyway. You kind of, people tend to just stop at the small catechism and say, well, all right, I know the small catechism, that's all of it, right? And uh, his point is that when it comes to baptism, there are the, who are now our evangelical brothers and sisters, but they were like Anabaptists and other groups during that time that would say, well, the, it's, uh, baptism, <clears throat> it doesn't really, the water's just, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, it doesn't really do anything. Does, you can, anybody can baptize. It doesn't have to be a pastor. None of that matters because the only thing that matters is your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, your faith. You believing in him is what's going to save you. And Luther says, well, no, that's not actually true. And that's the misconception we have about faith alone. We say, all I have to do is believe, and that's faith alone, and nothing else matters, just me believing. But here's a pretty big bubble-popping moment for you. If that's what you say, then faith is not faith. Faith is a work. If faith is me believing, that is a work, not faith. Think about that. I'm going to work real hard to make sure I really believe in Jesus. That's not quite right, actually. So then Luther goes on to talk about baptism and says, you're actually saved. Yes, you, faith is important and faith matters, and we still say you're saved uh, by faith alone because you don't do works that make God say, oh, look at you, you've done just enough uh, come on in. Uh, so you have to make that distinction. Works are not what is going to save you. Your own works are not what is going to save you. I'll get to that distinction in a minute. Your own works are not what is going to save you. 
It is your faith. But faith is more than saying, I believe, or I affirm these doctrines. That's part of faith, but that isn't faith. Because again, if you say that's what faith is, then faith isn't faith. Faith is a work. And then you're really no better off than you were before. So he says, yes, baptism is received by faith, and faith is really, really important. But your baptism is a work. You're saved by this work that is baptism. And uh, it's not just you saying, I believe, and then the water is a symbol. Water actually does something. Water and the word together, they do something. They save. It is a work. But here's then the distinction. You are saved by works, just like you're saved by faith. But whose works are you saved by? Yes, just say Jesus. Yes, yes, good work. You're saved by the works of Christ. That's the point. So yes, his death, but also his resurrection. But then baptism, baptism is a work, but it's not your work, it's a work that's done to you. The Eucharist is a work, but it's not a work that you do, it's a work that you receive. You see this now? Faith receives works of God. God works on faith. That's, this is what I talk about when I say faith receives the works, that, that the Lord works upon you. Baptism is a work, but it's a work of God, not a work of you. You just receive it. The Eucharist is a work of God, not of you. You receive it. Absolution is a work of God. You don't do anything in absolution. You just sit there, and somebody else says stuff to you and makes a sign of the cross on you and then sends you on your merry way. You're not doing anything. It's all reception of a work that the Lord is doing externally to you. This is why external means is so important. The Lord, can the Lord work spiritually? Flying through the air like a ghost, interacting with his people spiritually like that. Well, sure, but does he choose to? No, he doesn't. He chooses to work through means. And part of why he does that is because you have flesh and blood. You are not purely spiritual. You have a soul, so you're part spirit. But you also have bones and meat. So you're part not spirit, flesh. So in order for the Lord to work and interact to, upon, and with you, he has to work through means, water and the word. You see now there's the word and the elements. That there is a, a spiritual and a physical component the touch of hands upon your forehead and the words of absolution. The, war, the Lord works through means. There's spiritual and physical components. The office of the holy ministry for Pete's sake is the Lord working through means. Moses in the wilderness is the Lord working through means. It isn't Moses who stops the Red Sea waters from crashing down upon the Israelites, is it? No, but the Lord works through the means. 
which is also one reason why uh, the Lord historically throughout the Old Testament has picked people that probably the world would not have picked. People who aren't really good at what they do. Moses was a whiner. He was a complainer and he was kind of lazy. And he was old. No offense. None taken. <laughs> but if you, but listen, I mean, if I, if I called some of you up and said, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk all the way to California. I want you to engage in battle and do all kinds of big physical act, acts of physical labor. And then I want you to walk all the way back here, leading a whole bunch of people and taking care of them the whole way and making sure that nobody goes astray. And you'll fight some more battles along the way. What would you say? Somebody Call somebody else, which is what Moses says. I don't think I'm the right man for the job. No, you're the perfect man for the job because in your weakness, even you as a means, your weakness is what's going to be the thing to show forth the strength of the Lord. Moses, you're a whiny, lazy complainer, and you can't really do any of the things that I want you to do. You're perfect because nobody will be able to look at you and think that you're the one doing it. Everybody will look at you and know that it's the Lord who's doing it, not you. And that's the point. You're going to be a means through which I will work. The office of the ministry now is like that. Pastors are supposed to be humble. They're not supposed to have big heads. Because it's not them. It's not me. When the words of absolution are being spoken to you, it's not me. It's the word of the Lord. When the sermon is being preached to you, it's not me. It's the Lord. It's a divinely inspired message. It's the Lord who is giving you what you need to hear. When you come out of church and you say, boy, that hit me just, I don't know how you know, that just really, really hit me hard. Okay, I mean, I'm glad to hear it, but I can't take any of that credit for it because I don't know. I don't know what you all need to hear. And even if I did, you probably all need to hear something slightly different from one another. And there is no way that I can craft a sermon that would hit every single person exactly where they need to be hit. It wouldn't be a sermon. It would be a disjointed jumble of Proverbs, one proverb for each person in the congregation, and I'll keep them short so we don't go over 12 minutes. It's not me who speaks, it's the Lord. If the, if the words of the liturgy hit you, if the words of a sermon hit you, if the readings are just perfect for you, it is not me, it is not us, it is the Lord. The Spirit knows what you need, and the Spirit will deliver to you the things that you require whether that is words of comfort or whether that is words of chastisement. But the Spirit is the one who knows. So it is all about the work of the Lord. Now, yes, faith is an important thing. Faith does grasp and hold on to the things of God. But faith isn't something that is static. We talked about this. Faith has to move. Faith has to act. Faith has to do things. It can't help itself. Faith is not just me saying, I believe. Faith does believe, but faith, you can't just say, well, I believe, and that's all. Faith has to do, because there's a new man that is, that is uh, brought forth in faith, a new man that is modeled after Christ, and a new Christ that lives in you. Pay attention to the sermon today. Uh, it's all about this, because the gospel is about the two greatest commandments. It's all about how do you love your neighbor and how do you do works and why is it that you do do works. Now, you will be judged according to your works. And this is something that's really good. 
Um, one of my former professors at the seminary, David Scare, wrote this book on James. That is, it's a little commentary on James, and it's so good, so good. And I love the book of James, and I think it's misunderstood, and so does he. But here's something that's really kind of neat. You know, James talks an awful lot about works. In fact, let's just look at this quickly for some context. James, chapter 2. And actually, we'll just do this one verse. James chapter 2, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. Yes. Well, I have faith. You have works. Whoops. It's a false dichotomy. It's not faith or works. And this is a problem with some folks who are not very gracious with the theology of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, we believe that you're saved by grace, but you believe you're saved by works. But if we get down to the nitty-gritty, it's two sides of the same coin. And in, I'd say probably at least eight times out of 10, we're saying the same thing, we're just saying it's slightly different, and the slight difference is enough that we end up hating each other's guts because of it. But like I told you two weeks ago, the image of a, of a car, can your car drive without an engine? No. Are you really going to be able to get where you need to go if the only thing you have is an engine? No. It's silly. I mean, I can't hop, put a saddle on an engine and try and start her up and say, hey ho, silver away, and have it take me where I want to go. It doesn't work. You have to have the body of the car, and you have to have the engine as well. That's like faith and works. They go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. So, here's what Dr. David Scare says that I think is so great. Faith is the substance and works are the characteristics of that substance. Faith is the substance. Faith is important. You have faith. Good for you. But what is the characteristic of that substance? How do you know what the substance looks like? How do you know where the substance is? By what you do. By the works. By what you do. Yes. Let it be repeated. This is an exposition on faith, not works. James is not speaking to the question of the Christian's own self-conscious awareness of faith so that he can convince himself of his acceptability before God now. James is not talking about me saying, well, I believe in Jesus and that's going to be fine for me at the end because I believe. That's not what he's saying. That's not what faith is. He is addressing instead the question of the Christian's faith and its acceptability from the perspective of the last day. See, this is why Paul and James are really saying the same thing about faith. One looks at it from one side and the other looks at it from the other side, but it's still the same coin. You're just looking at two different sides of it from two different angles. So Paul looks about faith, speaks about faith now. What, what is faith right now? 
Hold firm to the things of Christ. Trust Him, follow Him, love Him. But that also bears the implication of works. James says, what does faith look like to God on the last day? What is He going to judge? You will give an account concerning your deeds. This is what faith looks like on the last day. So, live today as if it is the last day and look at your faith the way that the Lord will look at it and see that you are actually living the faith. Because the faith is not something to have, it is something to live. You're not born into life so that you can sit around like a potato and say, well, I was born, now that's the only thing in life that matters. You have to live. You have to do things. You have to get up and make yourself some food and you have to eat it. You have to go to work. You have to go to school. You have to learn. You have to do things. You have to take care of the people that need you. You have to feed the cats and the dogs and take them to the vet. You have to do things. So it is with faith. You're not just born again so that you can sit around like a Christian potato and say, well, I believe in God, that's it. I have a relationship with Jesus. I'm sorry, but if you don't live the faith, then you don't have a relationship with Jesus. It's one that's in name only. You say that you know him, but on the last day, he's going to say he doesn't know you. It's something you have to live. Faith is a journey. It is a pilgrimage. You are all pilgrims here walking through this veil of tears. There's a reason the faith is called the way. You don't get yourself out onto the hiking trail and then stand there going, well, I feel really good that I made it right here to the mouth of the trail. Good job. Why do you go to the hiking trail? To hike. Only a dummy goes there just to stand there and say, boy, isn't this nice? Look at this big long trail here. That looks really nice. And then hop back in your car and go home. Well, yeah. Wife and I went out to the hiking trail. Oh, how was the hike? Oh, we didn't hike. We just looked at the trail. It was very nice. Then we went home. <laughs> and it's silly. You can't do it. You put your hiking boots on. You put your jeans on. You pull your socks up so you don't get ticks or chiggers. And you go and you walk. And on this path, you ought to bring a, a stick or a machete or something because it's a little overgrown because nobody really wants to hike on this path. There's one way that's really pretty. Most people want to walk that way. It's really easy, it's nice and flat, and it's got a nice, it's like the Cadillac of hiking trails. And the trees kind of arch over, and it's really nice, and the sun shines down, and there's just the right spring in every step as you walk down that path. And what you don't realize is that slowly and slowly, your path doesn't take you anywhere. It's really pretty, but all it does is spiral down and down and down. And you walk it unawares, because you go, boy, this is so nice. Wow, I'm so comfortable here. I'm thirsty. Oh, look at that. Everything I want is right here for me. And it's almost like a maze, because you start walking that path, and then you think, well, I'm about ready to turn around, I think. I've walked a lot, and then the whole path just changes. You're stuck on it. You can't get out. It caught you unawares. But the other path, most people don't want to walk it. Only the brave walk this way. 
It's a little overgrown. There's some thorny bushes. It's a little bit dark. It's hard to see where you're going. You hear sounds, strange sounds. Sounds like wild animals in there. I don't really want to walk on that path. No matter how high my socks are pulled up, I still get chiggers. I still see ticks on me. I, I don't like this path. But that's the way that ends up at the most beautiful place. You see, you have to live it. You have to walk the way. It's called the way for a reason because you put your hiking boots on and you get on it and you walk it. And it is a little dark, but that's okay because someone's going to be with you who has a light. And yeah, there's going to be wild animals, but that's okay. You've got a guide who knows the way and he'll take care of the wild animals for you. Really, it's not so dangerous as it looks. You don't need a guide to walk the other way, but you do for this way. But he's always there. But you have to follow him as he's leading you down the way. You can try and cut over to the other path because it sounds like everyone's having a lot of fun there. There was one episode of The Simpsons. I don't really, I don't really watch The Simpsons all that often. Uh, but this episode I remember really clearly <laughs> because the Simpsons family are evangelical Protestants. That's where they go to church. like a Presbyterian church, I think. And Bart and Homer convert to Catholicism. And the whole town is abuzz. And uh, they want to say, oh, well, you should... You should come back to being Protestants because we have, we have more fun. We get to do more things. And there was something where it had like a picture of heaven. And everybody was sort of up there playing croquet. And they heard all this noise and they looked over and on another cloud, it was the Lutheran heaven, and everybody was jumping around drinking beer and having a really good time. And they said, well, doggone it, they have a lot more fun than we're having. <laughs> and I thought it was kind of funny, but, you know, you're walking this way, and you hear it says, boy, they're having a lot more fun than I'm having here. Maybe I want to go over there. Maybe I want to join everybody who walks on that path. But the end of that path isn't so great, but this path is. It's the best thing in the whole world, but you do have to kind of struggle to get there a little bit. But again, don't worry, you've got a guide with you. But all of this is to say it's a way, it's a life. It's something you do, not something you have. Now you can say, yes, I have faith, but at the end of the day, that's like you saying, I have life. Okay, you have life. You have air in your lungs, you've got blood in your veins, but what does it mean? What do you do with life? How do you quantify life? How do you possess life? Do you see the, you see the trouble? You don't possess it. You live it. You don't possess faith. You live it. And in fact, it's the opposite, really, because faith possesses you. Okay, I'll leave it there because we're a little over time. Any questions, though? Where does the apocrypha fall in between the old and new? Or? Yeah, generally it's between the old and the new. Yeah. So that's historically, uh, the, the books that talk about history... Um, explain a lot of the history between 
the end of the old and the beginning of the new in that what we call the intertestamental period. And then some of the other books are there other poetical books, so they would fit with some of the genre of the Old Testament. So like the Proverbs and the Psalms, wisdom and Tobit and things would go into that category. And then others are additions to books in, of the Bible, so little, uh, a, a few extra chapters to the book of Daniel, which is what ba Baal and the Dragon is about. And we actually read part of that in Bible class one time uh, about worshiping to Baal and uh, Go, the, the god needed to eat, so they have to put food out for the god, and Daniel said the gods don't, a real god doesn't have to eat, and all of that. Uh, and then there's some additions to Esther, too, uh, that add extra things on missing, well, not missing chapters, but flush certain aspects out a little bit. So, yeah, but chronologically, and for good order, it would sit between the old and the new, typically.